0: Ta-ta-ta! What a scramble! What a scramble!
1: Breaking news. As shock announcement comes from Juventus, apparently Aaron Ramsey will be leaving Arsenal on a free transfer for the Italian Giants this summer. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Whew! I mean, we were just getting ready to record when this news broke. We're going to have to process it. We haven't really had time to deal with it, but apparently Aaron Ramsey will not be an Arsenal player next season and is going to Juventus. I kid. I kid. In fact, we knew that. So... Much ado about nothing, uh, there is some debate whether it's 400000 a week or 250000 a week. I think we can certainly do a post-mortem on his career at Arsenal later. We've talked him quite to death, uh, not literally, figuratively, on this podcast. I don't know that we need to cover that in this particular episode. We will definitely save time to spare a thought for Ars- uh, Arsons. I almost did that. That would have been bad. Aaron Ramsey's uh, career at Arsenal down the line. And I, I think we would all agree on this podcast that... We probably didn't need to be paying him either of those wages, whichever one you believe it is, uh, and that the original sin is just not getting a transfer fee for him. So probably not a need to cover that in too much detail. I want to thank everybody who listened to the Would You Rather podcast that we did on Patreon. Um, Paul couldn't make it for that, which is, I assume, why the feedback was so positive. I kid, I kid. We love you, Paul. But... Uh, yeah, it was really, really a lot of fun. People seem to like it. We will do more of those. If you missed it, you can get to that uh, over on our Patreon. If it's not for you, no big deal. We love you anyway, as usual. And uh, we are going to talk Huddersfield today. Maybe not a vintage performance. We'll talk about whether that matters or not. And I think it is important as we get ready to, to discuss and debate this game to make the point that you can be critical of a performance and still be happy that we won it, right? Like, <laughs> you can win ugly. That's better than losing ugly, it just isn't always necessarily the best indication of the direction of travel. And so we will probably have some thoughts about this game that aren't super complimentary, but that doesn't mean we aren't all thrilled that we took three points. And the first person who was thrilled that we took all three points is Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Hello there, indeed. Paul's on Twitter at Paws into My Pants. Hello, Paws. Woohoo! Woohoo! indeed. And Clive. You can find him on Twitter at Clive P-A-F-C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Warned you you were on mute. You almost got caught out. Almost got caught out like Mustafi, but you turned into Koscielny at the last minute. Um, Okay, so let's dive in. And uh, Tim, I'll start with you. I think Mm. you have to have some sympathy for Emery in this game because he just didn't have a lot to choose from. It was a depleted squad Mm. with the announcement. You know, there was an illness that sort of ripped through the dressing room. Um, How and why you would let Mesut even come to the training ground without like medical gear on uh, Boy in the Bubble style. I'm not sure given his immune system, but at the end of the day, uh, no Ozil, no Obama Yang, uh, which was sort of a surprise. Quite a few missing through illness and injury. And as a result, he he had to pick a much-changed side. He he went with a back three. I'm not particularly of the opinion that a back three is inherently defensive. Um, I, mm-hmm. I think it can be deployed in a very attacking manner. So for you, um, did you have any issues with the way he set us up away at a team that hadn't scored since 1925 and had lost 22 of their last 19 games? no well
2: um not not especially not when I saw the team sheet um anyway I I think uh kind of in retrospect what it's fairly obvious he tried to do was set up on the counter um it was and I I, I don't know whether that's what his preferred tactic would have been had everyone been available but um it won't be Mkhitaryan and Lacazette was pretty much all he had going Going forward with you know the exception of Denis Suarez that that's a very counter-attacky front three um, and that's that's where most of our kind of best play came from in the first half and the few bits of attacking play we put together in the second half it was almost always kind of either counter-attacking or forcing turnovers high up and I think that was what he tried to focus on doing and obviously we did it better in one half than the other and um, and i think he just thought not so much um not not in a, a hugely negative because this is the thing obviously he's getting a reputation as a really negative manager um and or a very conservative manager at least um even though he played 442 away at city which um you know isn't a hugely conservative thing to do I I just think he looked at the players he had and not so much out of, you know, an admission of defeat or, oh, these players are crap. You know, I've got to sit back. It's more the type of players I think he had available were were quite of that kind of counter-attacking ilk. Um, And, and, you know, that's not to say I, I don't think he likes that. I think I'm right in saying that was the front three he went with at Stamford Bridge. I think Aubameyang might have started ahead of Lacazette that day, but... Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think he minds playing with that, that kind of, um, that kind of front three, but then also without Xhaka in midfield, I think that costs you a little bit of control maybe of possession. Um, so yeah, I, I think what he tried to do, um, is, is to make sense of the tools that he had, which, which worked okay in the first half. Um, in the second half, it kind of went to pot for reasons. I, I, I can't quite get my head around, to be honest.
1: Mm, Yeah, I mean, it it definitely did. Look, I mean, it was just ugly start to finish, but it was more ugly in the second half. And to be fair, let's just balance that against the ugly that is what happened to Chelsea against City and and take Mm. a moment to laugh at that because that was absolutely fucking hysterical. We wound up in fifth. (laughs) Thanks to that. Um, Tim, do you want to have just a a real quick word before I move on to Paul about um, uh, your comments regarding the, the Chelsea City game?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes Elliot, we 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 see a moth and we think it's a horse. You know, I um, I
1: don't know because cause I still can't figure out which is which <laughs> as between those two. And if you have no idea what Tim's look, uh, talking about, just Google horse moth, and uh, yeah, you will see one of my most proud moments. So yeah, there you go. Touché. That was a the proper rejoinder, and I will grant. You I've that.
2: I've been waiting. I've I've been keeping that in the
1: back pocket for the last few weeks. Yeah, well, you haven't needed needed it, um, because you're not often wrong. Um, but look, let's face it. If you're going to be wrong about something, Chelsea getting tonked is a, is a perfect one to be to be not on, on the money about. And uh, so putting aside their travails and getting to our travails of winning games. Uh, Paul, yeah, so I, for me, this wasn't a great performance. One of the things I wanted to get into, though, is what you thought of us with one striker up front. Because in theory... I've kind of had this belief that maybe we'd be better off picking one of the strikers and playing with two more natural wide players on either side. We saw that with Awobi and Mkhitaryan in this game. Again, not a vintage performance, but did you get any feeling maybe in the first half that we had a little better balance by having those two flankers, or or was it not working for you?
3: Um, No, I kind of thought the, the lineup on paper was pretty reasonable. It was nice to see... Uwobi and Mkhitaryan doing their thing again. Um, so to me, that was all good. I think Mkhitaryan maybe got tired in the second half, and that didn't help us any. But but, but I mean specifically,
1: do do you think that like having both of them out there and one striker looked a little more balanced? For you? I mean, we this is the first time yeah. we've seen a long time not having the the two up front or having a bombing. You know, at least on a wing.
3: Yeah, yeah, very much so. Don't don't worry. I was getting. There. Oh, I'm
1: sorry. Yep. Mm-hmm. That,
3: yeah, <laughs> I wasn't going to go past it. Yeah, no, uh, like on paper, it, uh, it, it should have been more balanced. And I think in the first half, it, it, had we had two halves like the first half, we'd probably been, been OK about the performance. I did think it had more balance. Uh, we had two wing backs that at least on this occasion were getting forward. Um, so we had width and that was where our attack came from. Uh, I agree with Tim. Chaka would have been an interesting addition to progressing the ball up the field, maybe more incisively. Uh, But on the whole, I mean, I I think the first half showed what was possible. Um, And I don't know what the second half was, really. I do prefer the idea of one good striker up front. Uh, uh, These days, I'm pretty torn between Lacazette and Aubameyang. I think Lacazette, you know, I, I think everybody's come round Wherever they started off on Lacazette being class and being in form and being a bit of a force and being able to contribute with and without the ball, um. So he's just kind of a bit undroppable at the moment, which, which is hard for us Aubameyang camp people.
1: That would be me, uh, yeah. And I don't think yeah. it's hard to drop. I could drop him easily for Aubameyang. I don't. I don't. I think there's nothing to choose between them because I think that Lacazette. Gives you a lot of things out of possession that Yang doesn't necessarily do as well. But I also think Lacazette sometimes struggles to turn dangerous positions into chances. So uh, it's a little six of one half dozen the other for me. I still think Yang yeah. is your more reliable goal scorer. But that, that seems like you know me just pointing at this the sky and saying it's blue.
3: Yeah, and maybe I'm just... Uh, I would have put myself right beside you on that. Uh, maybe I'm just a little bit closer to the Lacazette side mm-hmm. these days. I mean, Fair he's enough. just been so bloody class his energy, his strength, and what he's done. So, uh, again, this is talking to the balance point, even if I may seem like I'm wandering over it. I think he gives us so much uh, in the center that it really works well with him hooking up potentially with Mikatarian and Iwobi's and op- options we haven't seen for a while, and then Suarez coming in to take one of those two spots. Um, uh, uh, this could be a formation that does us a lot of good, but this second-half performance won't, won't do a lot for the confidence.
1: Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, I think, you know, look, when you talk about a performance being bad, it's easy to then, you know, go after the manager and say, what well, was a defensive setup. I want to sort of clarify something, Clive. You know, I, a lot of people in the wake of this were saying, oh, you know, we were too defensive against Huddersfield, and, you know, they had more possession than us and more territory than us, and those things are true, but the issue for me isn't that we were defensive or not defensive it's just that we were very very bad at passing the football um i mean this this is the thing that really struck me in this game is that we were just really bad passing i think we finished the game around 70% passing and you have people like kolasinac who finished around 50% we were just not able to keep the ball and pass it to one another and so i mean how do you look at an Arsenal team like this that certainly has some quality in it, going up against a Huddersfield team that, that, admittedly, has has actually had the lion's share of possession in a couple of their home games recently, but is not a particularly good yeah. team, and we just weren't able to pass the ball to one another. What, what do you account for that?
4: Uh, I think the whole performance, I mean, is it's really down to our maybe lack of a confidence away from home. And I think he needs, although I do love his tactical flexibility. We have a problem away from home and I do think he needs to settle on something away from home. For me the back three, given the fact we've lost Bellerin, is the best option to do that. But the problem really, and the reason why we didn't really control this game, was not the formation, it was our starting positions. We were far too deep as a unit and that back three was too comfortably made a back five. Our wing backs were disappointing for me in their starting positions. Not what they did on the ball, because we uh, we were all a little bit hot and cold on the ball, but their starting positions were far too conservative. They need to be far more aggressive to push Huddersfield back and gain more control of the game. The interior part of the team was fine. I, th- I didn't think we could work. I thought it would have be been Mikatarium did what. What they do, I thought they did it quite well. Uh, Lacazette had a a decent to average game. uh, And the two in front were were okay. But your real trick, when you play wing-backs, they positionally cover the pitch. And they dictate the story. They're almost like your measure for how aggressive you are. And I just felt they were too late arriving they they played it like almost like midfielders and they weren't like running through the lines that so I hoped they would run. And sometimes when you have those wide players you just to you gotta make runs. And I think if anything, to make the wing backs really work, you have to have the ability to switch play to them early. And I felt having the wing backs and having a shaka in there and his ability to switch play with a heavy pace of pass, which means they're getting the ball in one on one situations a lot earlier. And they, what they'll do then, if they know they've got somebody who can switch it 50 yards, they will make the run. They will make the run more proactively. And that pushes the whole unit up. If you push the unit up, you get control. So we've walked away from a 2 0 win playing on the counter attack versus the, you know, the worst team in the league. But actually, we're thinking we didn't really control that game. And then you have to look at why. And that, for me, was the reason why we didn't have the aggressive positioning. So, systemically, I'm absolutely fine with it. With the players we had missing, there wasn't really much choice in the, in the, in the start in 11. But how we played it, how passive we were, and where we stood, I felt was even for a counter attack setup, I thought it was a little bit conservative. And um, what you're doing then is you're passing square Elliot a lot to players who are standing. And not moving and there's no flow and if you get your pass your five yard pass off suddenly you're running back towards your own goal and you're defending and i felt there was no flow to us we were passing to standing targets because i don't think we were aggressive enough and i asked myself why and I, and I do think his confidence made from home i don't think we're great so that win i hope was a small building block to us getting some away confidence and hopefully some away systemic stability i think the team needs it, and there's an opportunity to do that now with the personnel that's available and the personnel that's injured. That's almost forcing you to play this way, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I definitely see that to some extent. I, I, still have a hard time. I mean, Tim, for me, you know, knowing nothing about football and having just watched for the first time this this past weekend, I, it seemed to me that these people are not good at the football. Um, <laughs> like all kidding aside, like okay. Kolasinac finished 55% passing on 45 passes. Mm. Maitland-Niles, 61% on 52 passes. Iwobi, 63% on 33 passes. Lucas Torreira, 64% on just 28 passes from the midfield. Um, you know, Mkhitaryan, 74% on 27 passes. Mustafi, center back, 74% on 47 passes. That's how you put yourself in deep shit. I mean, Matteo Ganduzi only had 35 passes, but at least completed them at 83%. I, and Lauren Koscielny was our best passer on the day um at ninety. So mm. you know, when you look at wingbacks, backs and, and by the way I looked at it, it's not just that these were forward, you know, long balls, through balls that were not being completed. Yeah. Maitland Niles and um Klosinac both m- completed about fifty percent of their passes in the middle third. That's how you put yourself under the cosh. That's how you mm. wind up, you know, chasing back towards your own goal. Do do you have anything where you'd specifically attribute, you know, this bad passing to any any anything in particular that you noticed?
2: Um, I think it was just uh it's a little bit what what Clive said. I think the spacing um was, was just wrong. And I and I think um I know listen, I know Xhaka becomes the best player in the world when he doesn't play like a lot of players, yep. but um, I, I do think that's that's kind of behind it. And that's not to say that Granite Xhaka is just so brilliant that um, he elevates the level of everybody around him um, just like that. It's, it's just more that Xhaka is one of the few players in this team who has a very, very definite job um, that he does all the time, every single week and has done ever since he's been in the team. Um, and you, you see how um, how pivotal this kind of player is to a lot of teams um, in the top six. You know, you look at, I, I'm not suggesting he's on their level per se, but you look at someone like Fernandinho. Um, I mean, I think he's better than Jorginho has been at, at Chelsea so far. But, you know, a, a lot of managers are very married to having that kind of deep distributor. And it's interesting because there's lots of defensive midfielders playing a little bit higher up, much to the confusion and consternation of, of everybody and I just I just wonder if it was maybe a little bit confidence a little bit people just not quite sure of their jobs Um, and I think Clive's right really because when your wing backs are starting as full backs effectively rather than really pushing up then you haven't got a four in midfield anymore you've got two and so you've got Gendouzi and Torreira and then who do they go to? Because Iwobi be and Mkhitaryan aren't playing out wide. They're playing in those kind of half spaces. And those are those are difficult passes to find. Um, and those are the passes that someone like Xhaka and probably someone like Ozil as well and Ramsey, um, they're all good kind of progressive passes in, into those types of player. Um, I think Gendouzi can do that, but I think he went very deep. I think maybe he was supposed to be the the deep distributor and he's, he's got a pass in him certainly. But, um, I I don't think perhaps he's quite got that rhythm that Jack has got where, you know, Jack plays that role in autopilot. And as a result, the whole team goes on autopilot because they know what's going to happen when he gets the ball. So I I just think things were a little bit muddled, um, in that midfield. And instead of the wingbacks pushing up to make it a four, it kind of became a two. And, you know, even leaving that aside, there was lots of sloppy play from Kalasenac, which we're quite used to. Now he regularly finishes um, kind of in the low sixties, high fifties for passing, which for someone who's playing, you know, ostensibly as a midfielder, is, is pretty poor. Um, Maitland Niles, he, I, I, I was watching the breakdown, and I think uh, Adrian Clark said Maitland Niles got the ball twenty five more times than any other Arsenal player. So they're obviously told to go down the right. Um, on this occasion, which was a, a bit of a change because we've been hitting the left a lot, but um, we we hit Maitland Niles a lot, and he got a lot of the ball. But unfortunately, he was he was quite patchy with it. I mean, he did some good, and we got a goal out of it. But he he lost it quite a lot as well, and and I think the wing backs being a bit iffy was um, would kind of explains why perhaps Gendouzi and Torreira kind of struggled and then that left Iwobi I think with a lot to do because he was kind of trying to connect the team in two different areas and uh and and, and he had a bloody good go at it but um I'm sure we'll talk about him later anyway
1: yeah uh, well, I think yeah go ahead th- go ahead
3: Paul. Elliot could I add I think Tim's been pretty harsh on Kolasinac I mean he, he hasn't given him I mean people can call his goal a tap-in but if you look <laughs> at the run he had to make for that his positioning his awareness And then people say things like, you can't miss from there. Well, how often have we seen people miss from there? He can miss from there, yeah. Exactly. So, you know.
1: It's a really good point. I'm glad you you made it, Paul. And I always appreciate when your contributions uh, add something substantive to the podcast. (laughs) So thank you for that. Um, Well, so, all right, let's talk about defending. and, And, Paul, stay with you since you've taken the Conch? 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 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I'm, have I just who's, outed you? Who's, who's the, look, look, taken the what? Paul has
3: taken the conk.
1: Conk. Okay, great. Um, uh, so, Paul has He's taken the conk, and you have got to be really careful that how you say that. But no judgments. But but by the enclosed lingerie, um, Paul. I, I mean, defending is just not our thing. And the interesting thing here is this was Hutterfield's second highest xG of the season, expected goals of the season. They had something like 26 crosses. Um, you know, which you could say, well, that's good defending in a way because crosses produce low quality chances and so we wanted them crossing. They don't really have a target man and that played into the strength of us having an extra center back. But, you know, for me, if I look at the Chelsea game that we won, the second half was kind of boring and it was just professionally killed off game. This was not that. This I don't feel that we really ever had control in this game, especially in the second half. I mean, do you feel that... There is something going on systemically here that's causing us to be under so much pressure and making it difficult for us to control a game. What did you see in the second half in particular that that made us so jittery
3: um I mean I think the second half is largely down to just an appalling lack of of quality I'd like to think they all had the flu by the time they were done
1: mm-hmm.
3: um i i mean i I agree maybe on positioning and other players finding Finding spots that you can play out from, and maybe us being a little bit predictable by the second half, and Huddersfield have high, having a higher level of energy, knowing that there's always a goal against Arsenal, and they'd nothing to lose, all that stuff. But there's really no excuse for that level of passing and performance. Um, we do seem, e- e- Emery on his side does seem to be happy to concede the wings defensively. Um we certainly saw that against City and we've seen it many times. And I mean, there are, are clubs that do that brilliantly. Uh, Atletico and Madrid uh, will give you the wings. and But they're so, so uh, they've such a compact block in the center that you can bang the ball in as often as you like. You're not going to score. Whereas we seem to combine, we'll give you the wings, but we'll also give you the mushy center. And uh, now with three at the back that's, and that's two That's a nasty back-
1: way to refer to Mustafi, by the way. But I agree with it.
3: Yeah, poor, poor old Mustafi. So I was thinking about you the other day. If I went to the fairground with you to play whack-a-mole.
1: Would I just keep whack-a-mole? whacking the same mole?
3: <laughs> you fucking quack the same mole. Contin- how did you know? Because <laughs> that's how I play whack-a-mole. <laughs> you see? <laughs> yeah. For a whole it. season. You whack one mole, even though all those others are popping their heads up. I've only uh, got the
1: one mole to whack.
3: Oh, okay. So, (laughs) um, you know, this is another game where people had various things to say about Mustafi, but, like, he wasn't the problem, was he, really? Mm, I mean,
1: let's put it this way. If he hadn't had the rock that was Koscielny standing next to him, he might well have been the problem. I thought Koscielny deserves a lot of credit and was arguably the man of the match, but,
3: yeah, I mean. He was the man of the match, wasn't he? He was superb. Well, Um, he was everywhere and he's reestablishing that level of performance and I have a very high view of Monreal. But I think he gets very intimidated against a pacey player more, more so than he should have. mm -hmm. And they put pace against him. Uh, And Kolasinac on his wing is not the most fastidious of defenders. And I think we just conceded the wings and that's something Emery is willing to do time and time again um because uh, and maybe this lineup talks to it too i mean he just he doesn't know how to fix our defense <laughs> and uh had we not had so many illnesses and uh, and sicknesses for this uh maybe you could give him a harder time on it but he does seem to have decided he can't fix our defense but you can't con- conceding goals is go- is going to- Get it going to put a hole in our boat for top four, and so there is a bit of a conservatism, a pragmatism. Um, but I, I don't know what his answer is because conceding the wings isn't working for us at the moment.
1: Yeah, I mean I I agree with that. And look, I think ultimately there was a point in this game, even as poorly as we played and upon reflection, where I thought this could be a six seven sc- nil scoreline like what Chelsea did to them at Stamford Bridge, because you know for as much as we weren't really. Uh, keeping possession, when we did string a couple passes together, we cut them open quite easily. And I don't know why that stopped in the second half. I mean, maybe Mkhitaryan started to fade, which you could understand because he's only played one half of uh, you know reserve football since he's been back. Um, they pressed us like crazy. Uh, I'll throw out an interesting stat, and, and this is for anyone saying, why are we wor- so much worse away from home? So we beat the shit out of Huddersfield on XG in the reverse fixture, okay? So at home, we really... Punish them the passes per defensive action which is the statistic that is most commonly cited as a sign of press what that basically means is how many passes are you making before there's a defensive action right like before someone tackles you intercepts you fouls you something like that in the home fixture you guys will like this we uh they had five passes per defensive action before we we stopped them broke up their play and we had 10 So we were keeping possession really well, and they were getting pressed. In this fixture, we had four and a half passes per their defensive action, and they had 10. So it was almost the exact reverse pattern of play where they pressed us like crazy and we capitulated against that press and i'm wondering if away from home teams are being more proactive in pressing us and that is kind of our achilles heel we don't have the technical security and and escapability in the midfield and we suffer for that away from home when we get pressed and I, that's something that i think would be interesting to go back and look at but clive i want to talk about a Wobie for a minute you know an interesting performance from him he scores a goal um you know, Somewhat fortunately, I think he was in the right place where he needed to be, he didn't make the best contact, they all they all count. Um, he hit one straight at the keeper, did not receive the best reception from the traveling support, so to speak, uh, when he was taken off. How did you feel about his performance?
4: I thought he'd done fine. I thought the game was set up for him. It was a counterattack game, and he's somebody that can make big strides and travel with the ball quite well. He's, you know, he's, he's a good, strong runner. And the game was set up for him. I, I, I did feel collectively. And I said earlier, if you're looking for reasons why we didn't control the game, it was how where we stood. Our average position map was way too deep. There's nothing more than that. And so, there's nothing. It, it, the stats are an output of how you approach the game and how aggressive you were. We were not aggressive enough. Right. So he will be as a as a as a player. You heard me say before, they're top six games and they're the rest. And against a lot of the rest of the teams, he's absolutely fine. I think some of the frustration with him is not with him per se, but potentially the general downgrade of, of Arsenal. And and people look at players before and players who are not playing and players who are on the bench and they see him and they think, we are not upgrading and so he becomes a target, and they don't actually see his game. I think they say were to look at his game a little bit more and think about what he's done and how to get here, and the level of production. I know he's inconsistent, but I think the issue is the upgrade issue and also the reliance issue. We are so reliant on him, and when we are desperate for somebody to do well and be that player, and when they're not quite that player, then our reaction to them can be uh. A little bit indifferent so as a, as a player I sway on him because his performances are they sway they go up and down I think the issue with him is I, I don't think he sustains long runs of football I think he needs to be taken out but with Mikatarian not quite there and the others around these situations where they are I don't feel I don't feel we have the backup, hence why we brought in a Denis Suarez, who's nowhere near at the fitness level to really contribute consistently. So, therein lies the problem. There, I know I went onto a little bit onto the reaction of Iwobi, but for me, it's it's almost beyond the player. It's um where we are as a club and as a squad, and I feel he absolutely pays a price for that, and um, which we all saw online yesterday and today. Mm, Yeah. What about you, Paul?
3: Yeah, um, I just just feel that we're making a, maybe a bit of the Giroud pr- mistake here again, where we he's getting judged because he, as Clive alludes to, he's the guy that keeps getting played, and no matter how you feel about him, for those who aren't who are frustrated by him or who don't think he's good enough to be a starting player in a top four or top six club, if they could console themselves that he's like a squad player or maybe a very good squad player um, who we use when we need him, who plays a role, who comes in when he's needed, um, who happens to be starting all the time because the manager doesn't see anybody else that he wants to start ahead of him. We would maybe stop taking it out on him. You know, I think most people would say had Giroud been our plan B and used as such, um, we'd all have thought he was a great guy um, and a real asset, etc. Now, there are people across the spectrum on Giroud. And I think there are people across the spectrum on Awobi, but most people could get on board with the idea that he's a very useful player to have in your squad. And we should remember, it's not his fault, if you're not crazy about him, that he gets started all the time.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think that's perfectly fair. I, I think, look, to me, and this is this should just be obvious, there's a big difference between critiquing a player on the merits and abusing a player directly or, you know, coming at them on social media or whatever. And one, I think is perfectly reasonable, part of the Discourse and discussion around football, and the other is just bad behavior. Um, I, you know, I think you can evaluate a will be any way you want as long as you're not tagging him and telling him he's, you know, bad at football or something stupid like that. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Clive, should we volley this one back over Tim's head? And and, no, you okay? You want to talk? Okay. I, I just got messaged back that we don't need to volley it back, Tim. So that's good. How about we do this? How about, um, how about we put on something sexy for our partners, or put something sexy on our partners for the Valentine's yeah. Day that's coming up, and then come back and uh, let Tim participate in the podcast. So we'll take a break. We'll be back with more right after this. Okay, everyone, it's time to tell you about our friends at Enclosed lingerie. You can find them online at the Enclosed the. E-N-C-L-O-S-E-D.com. Enclosed Lingerie is a lingerie of the month club. That's right, just like a beer of the month club, only better, because it's a high-end luxury lingerie gift for you and your partner that's going to enhance the intimacy in your relationship. Right now, if you put in Arsenal at checkout, they're gonna give you $35 off any gift from Enclosed Lingerie. So you're gonna wanna go to theenclosed.com and sign up now. Look, Valentine's Day is around the corner. What better way to celebrate the romance in your relationship than celebrating Valentine's Day with a gift from The Enclosed? And the gifts keep coming every month. So while it can be difficult to remember to keep the romance, to keep the intimacy in your relationship, The Enclosed has your back. Every month you're going to get that high-end luxury lingerie gift and it's going to remind you of the importance of romance in your relationship. So do it now. Go to theenclosed.com. There is a perfect fit guarantee, so you never have to worry about the fit. It's beautiful high-end luxury lingerie. Just go to theenclosed.com and enter promo code ARSENAL for $35 off at checkout. Do it now. Okay, we're back. and Now that we got that sorted out, uh, let's get into more of what was, let's say it, an instant classic that uh, I'm sure Paul's on his third viewing of. Um, look, a win is a win, but uh, in the interest of hashtag content, I think we should continue to break this one down. And, Tim, I, I want to talk about Maitland-Niles. We're in a weird position right mm. now. I-, I think Paul was making an interesting point. Bookmark that, Paul. Uh, that, you know, we we tend to evaluate a player without looking at the circumstance by which they're playing in the position and to the extent that they are, right? So it will be mm. maybe in an ideal world wouldn't be starting every single game for Arsenal right now at this stage of his development Mm -hmm. in his career, but he is for all the reasons that we know. Maitland-Niles is in a similar situation. Probably not a Mm -hmm. right back or a right wing back. Why is he starting for Arsenal? Because Hector Bellerin is out for a year, because Lick Steiner is dead, and because Carl Jenkinson is a super fan and not particularly a first-team footballer. So, like, that's why he's starting there, and it's going to be hit and miss. So, for you, I mean, what is the right way to evaluate Maitland-Niles, in particular, this performance? I mean beautiful cross for an assist. Can't mm. look the other way on that. Um once again I thought pretty strong in the duels, but again, you know, passing at a pretty low rate and giving the ball away somewhat recklessly in his own area. I mean, it's it's a little bit good, a little bit bad with with maitland Miles right now.
2: Yeah, and I, and I think that's the, the thing that concerns me is that some of the errors are quite routine and um he's he's going to become a target quite quickly i think particularly with the press because he turns the ball a lot over a lot um in in the defensive third and uh, it it seems really unnecessary because his technique and his body strength are both really really good and it just seems like you know sometimes you watch him and one minute you're like oh i'm really impressed with how calm he is and then the next minute you're like wake up, man, like, ratchet up the intensity <laughs> Calm is a little good, bit. sleeping like,
1: is bad. <laughs> it,
2: exactly, yeah, yeah, it, it's, you know, it's uh, did you ever see the movie My Own Private Idaho? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the Gus Van Sant, um, kind of where the guy's got narcolepsy, it, it kind of feels like <laughs> that bit with, uh, with Maitland Niles, like sometimes you're like, oh, he's super cool and composed, and the next minute you're like, Ainsley, Ainsley, Ainsley. <laughs> Well,
1: there was one. You remember the one? Uh, He had a a pass. I mean, there are different ways to lose the ball, but he had one, like, square pass to sort of no one right to the Huddersfield player that that was really bad.
2: But then, um, if I'm thinking about the same one, he, like, sprints back to win it back and then wins us a free Mm -hmm. kick, and you think... Yep, exactly, exactly. When you're when you're on it, you're really, really good, and you're really secure, and you're you're good on the ball and everything. And we saw it with the assist, which um, it happened down the other end to me, so I didn't actually appreciate what a good ball it it really was. Um, uh, the best the best compliment I can give it was it was Sterling esque, um, given how often we see Man City score that goal, and uh, and you know he overlapped at the right time with Mikatarian and that, that was. You know, that that goal was structured in such a way you think, yeah, that that was we worked on that a lot in training. That was the kind of goal that Emery um, and the team would have been visualizing on the training ground. You think, yes, you can do that when you when you got the afterburners on and we were on the counter attack, you got up there and you got that overlapping run and you played it. and, And there's there's so much there. He makes basic errors, which are especially frustrating because they seem quite unnecessary. They seem beneath him. It doesn't, you know, I I don't get I, did, I didn't get angry at Licksteiner for getting torn apart by Raheem Sterling because I, I just kind of thought, yeah, that's 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 probably just where you're at at this stage of your career. You know, whereas with with Maitland Niles, I, I thought it was a really mixed bag, but it did it didn't. Maybe I'm wrong, but it doesn't it doesn't feel and look like it needs to be a mixed bag. It looks like you know, look, he's not Bellerin. of course he's not. That's just a consequence of losing your first choice player. No, nobody has like second and third choice fullbacks that are as good as their first choice. Nobody has that. Everyone's going to suffer in that scenario. But but you know, I, I kind of I look at what um, you know Man City did last season with Fabian Delph, and you know Fabian Delph played left back. Um, all of last season because Mendy was injured, mm. and he wasn't the best in the world at it. It's probably not where he wanted to play, but he did a, like a passable enough impression. And and I think Maitland, I do think Maitland Niles has got that in him. I think he's good enough to do like a passable impression, but he he just makes errors, particularly in the defensive third, which are potentially really damaging. Uh, they were really damaging against Man United, and if Huddersfield had you know, even a championship level attacking player, they probably would have punished us a bit more for for some of his mistakes in in the final third. And that that that's why I I think Maitland-Niles has got stacks of potential, but maybe it's just a learning point that sometimes he doesn't quite have as much time as he thinks. And, you know, this isn't the under-21s anymore, which, you know, he he hasn't played at that level for ages. He's been in and around the first team all of last season. So, you know, he he can't bully some of these guys off the ball. He can't, like, you know, do the Matador thing with them and say, come on, come and try and get the ball off me. Like, this is... You know, this is Premier League football. This is the serious stuff now. So, I, you know, I, I'm not saying I want him to turn into like a vain like eye bulging, vein propulsing madman or anything. Like his, <laughs> his his composure is is valuable, but you know you know um a bit like Genduzi, right gendouzi's got super composure on the ball like unbelievable composure takes the ball in you know ridiculous scenarios and isn't worried but you don't get the, the impression he's asleep he's like he's an intense player he plays seriously and and he at least know, has I the good sense they,
1: to go down if he's losing the ball <laughs> and try to get a yeah, foul
2: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and 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 particularly Maitland-Niles is going to have to knock this out of his game if we've got Kolasinac giving the ball away on the left-hand side as well. But, you know, Kalasinac he kind of adds something going forward at at the very least. And and I just think Maitland-Niles has got to worry about the basics for now because I think he's got the rest.
1: Yeah, well, and I mean, I've never seen a situation like this on social media where... In one tweet or in one breath, someone would be saying, "Oh, Maitland-Niles, gosh, what a bad game! Oh God, that guy struggled." And in the very next breath, being like, "We should stick with Maitland-Niles at wingback because he's our best option." I mean, Clive, it is a it is a weird situation because everyone can see what Tim is talking about those you know the learning curve, the growing pains at the position, and yet I think almost everyone unanimously agrees that he's still the best option we have to keep going at that position. And I worry for him a little bit because he's going to have to, you know the expression tweet through it? <laughs> he's going to kind of have to <laughs> play through it. Like be bad at times, take a bunch of stick at times, and yet run back out there and do it again because he's the best we got. So, I mean, where do you come down on, on how he's developing in that position and how he played against Huddersfield?
4: Yeah, I think Tim touched on it, and I'm going to take a little bit further, actually. I think he is a, a product of academy football. And and exactly, you know, he dominated when he was an academy player, young player. And maybe the fact of our squad weaknesses over the last couple of years, we haven't given him enough first-team football in a role that defines him, that allows him to go onto a pitch and define himself. What we've done is we've utilised him to cover gaps in our squad. And and that's that's affected his mentality. So he goes on thinking, well, I've got nothing to lose here. I've got nothing to lose. I'll just go and do my best because no one's expecting me to be a left back. So he can go out there and, and and he can't fail. And funny enough, now he's moved on to his right foot. He's under a bit more pressure to deliver because he's on his right side. And he hasn't always done it on his right side. And I remember I watching an interview with Wenger just the other week. And it said, you know, what do you, what's your best advice to a young player? And he said, well, pick a player that you play like and define your game on him. I'm thinking, if I'm Maitland-Niles, how do you define yourself? Are you a left-back or right-back in a four? Are you a wing-back in, in a in a five? Are you a centre midfielder in a two or a three? And at the moment, he's all of the above. And when he goes out there with our hopes and dreams tied into him to be that wing-back or right-back, he doesn't always adjust to it properly. And, and I think, you know, I am one... You know, we can all see his ability. And we can all see what he can do, but his mentality to adjusting quickly to the, to the position, to the system, what the game requires, that's a challenge. And Tim's point about Fabian Del, that's a brilliant analogy. The big difference is that Fabian Del's probably 28, 29 when he had to adjust a to new position. He's got the experience of being a, a Premier League player. He knows he can play at the level. He's had years at a level. He's captained Premier League clubs. This kid doesn't quite know what he is yet he's not defined in that way in an Arsenal team which is a higher quality than the stability that Delph grew up in and I know he settled in well at City in the end but I think that's a challenge and we expect so much from him and I think he struggles on occasion one good one bad we got a few of those haven't we Nick Italian, one good one bad it won't be one good one bad there's a few of them at the moment that are just very hot and cold but again what we're seeing is a player that's coming in to replace a player that this time last year was getting equal stick for being one good, one bad. And I think it's just a byproduct of how we analyze modern players in particular. This kid, you've heard me say before, Bob Marley, needs to be a little bit more intense, bit more proactive. Make the game do what you want rather than reacting to the game that's in front of you. When he's under less time pressure, when he's got time to to think, I think he's sloppy. When he's forced to his physical edge, I think he's brilliant. And if you watch him closely, when he's stretched, that's when he comes out of himself. When he's not, I think he plays academy football in the Premier League, and um, and that's uh maybe a an issue of how we've developed in my in my opinion.
3: Paul, you want to add? Yeah, I just wanted to say it seems like I don't know when we first started discussing AMN in the the first team scenario. Uh, but it feels like it was a couple of years ago and it feels like the discussion is basically the same, which is a guy with tremendous uh, physical, athletic attributes, skill, uh, incredibly smooth on the ball at times, uh, unlimited physical and footballing potential. The only question's ever been kind of, can he stay switched on? Because we've seen this right from the get-go. And I don't mean that to be harsh on the guy. Um, We talk about it as if it's just a mental choice, but your mental capabilities are also physical, right? Um, I'm sure he's trying. I'm sure he's trying to be as motivated, as switched on as he can be, but this may be just who the kid is. Mm. Uh, You look at Ganduzi at 19 or Torreira at 22, who looks as hard an old pro as his face looks. Um, I bet when, if you saw terreira at 18 or 19, he was just as switched on, just as tuned in. Uh, you know, uh, Gendouzi was quite the character by all accounts over at Lorient um, and thought he should be basically uh, the star of the team, probably because he probably should have been. And that was at the ages of 17 and 18. and And you kind of most, of course, everybody can change and develop and grow, but they kind of have their set points and. I think this is just Maitland-Niles. I think he's trying to stay switched on, but this is this is who he is. And I have a feeling we'll be kind of pulling our hair out over him, uh, getting really frustrated with him. And it may just not be his fault in that your your mental attributes are physical, too. So this mm. may be kind of where his limit is.
1: Yeah, can I just, can yeah. I just add one I
4: would love thing it if you would, it. please, Sorry. yes <laughs> I think that uh, that bit what Paul says is dead right but position, you can fix that and you just have some players that are fantastic off the ball and I think he's somebody who just needs to be in the fire he needs to be in the centre of the pitch in the fire in the midfield three, he reminds me a lot of Oxlade-Chamberlain in in, in the role right hand side of a three with a lot of those type of skills he can obviously play wide but it's not his ideal position but he can do it and I think if we can he's obviously struggles when he's when when the game's around him he knocks off right when it ever when he's in it in the mixer he's much better and I think that tells you what he is as a, as a footballer he's a he's a he's a center midfield I'm afraid well that can play wide rather than a fullback that can play in center midfield
1: you know one thing that I think is really unfortunate for him um, is that he was injured during our Europa League group stage because yeah, I-, I thought yeah. he was going to get a lot of playing time. Then now, look, Emery wound up not rotating much, so maybe he wouldn't have. But I think it would have done him a world of good to have had some minutes under his belt. Because you have to remember, he's not only being thrown in at the deep end in a position that's not necessarily natural, you know, in the league, in the crunch period of the season, but really just back from injury and having not played a lot. And I had he had that chance, you know, to to play in the in the group stage in the Europa League, to play in the the Carabao Cup games. I think that could have been a huge way for him to kick on. Yeah, um indeed. You know, I think his best game for us this season, I, I think, am I right in saying he started the FA Cup game uh, against, who was it? it was uh, Blackpool. Yeah, Blackpool. And I thought he was really good in that game, yeah. right? And I think he played midfield even. Um, and, you know, so he was in his natural position against lesser opposition, and he looked like the level and the position suited him, and he played well. So, you know, I, I just, I think maybe there'll be an upward trajectory, but maybe there will also be some sloppiness in his game, because it is in his game and because this isn't a position that suits him he's still our best option there for now so let's hope he kicks on um let's start to wrap up on this game and then we can just briefly cast an eye forward and and maybe spend just a little more time laughing at Chelsea because I think that's pretty important um you know Tim where do you stand on the winning ugly is okay debate I, I mean I don't think anyone on this podcast or anyone anywhere didn't want Arsenal to get three points and isn't happy that Arsenal got three points. I think there are valid concerns about the performance, especially in the second half. And I think it is fair to say that if we continue to play like we did in this game, we will not accomplish the things we want to accomplish and we will not pick up points at the rate we'd like to pick them up. So, you know, a lot. I've heard a lot of people saying like, oh, you know, it, it's style over substance. I'm not so concerned about style over substance as I said the second half against mm. Chelsea wasn't stylish but it had real substance to it. I thought there was neither style nor substance to the second half performance here. So how do you evaluate something like that when you take 3 points away but do it in that fashion?
2: Yeah, I I mean there's the, the thing I think the thing is here there's there's Two different meanings, isn't there, to to winning ugly? There's winning ugly by um, kicking the opposition about and maybe playing a bit of long ball or playing a bit of counter attack or, or you know, being a bit defensive. Um, and then there's winning ugly, which is basically just playing shit and winning, yeah, <laughs> um, j- just, just
1: being bad at the football. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Almost like winning to spite yourself. So, I mean, personally. Um, as someone who has kind of reared on George Graham's Arsenal um I I enjoyed the shit out of us beating teams 1-0 um particularly that cup winners cup run you know I feel like George gets um gets some some bad gets some bad press like contemporaneously but you know there was a time during that period where <clears throat> excuse me it was sensational like I I I implore anyone to go back and watch that Palmer final from 94. It was a masterclass. It was thoroughly enjoyable because it was deliberate. Um, and it, it was just come at us and we'll keep you out. It's as simple as that. And and we did that many times. Um, the problem was with the end of George's reign, that kind of very quickly just went to, oh, we're just playing shit now <laughs> and we're just sticking defenders in midfield. And And that's the thing. So really it's about, it's about, isn't it? It's about process and result, isn't it? And it's about how much you believe the ugly part is part of the process. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, I, I think there was a bit of ugliness in the process in that we kind of set up to play on the counter. And was it Burn Leno? Um, made it an interesting quote. I didn't didn't see where the interview came from. I just saw it from one of those Twitter accounts that steals people's content and tweets it all out.
1: It's uh, Um, at Yankee Gunner.
2: (laughs) uh, But it had something, he said something like, we waited for mistakes, which obviously that tells you that that's, and you know, the the problem is the
1: mistakes were our own. (laughs) We we, we waited for those.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We waited for Huddersfield's mistakes. Ah. And, um, you know, Huddersfield are a team who are going to make plenty of mistakes because they're quite bad. Um, so that, that tells you that, that, yeah, there was a bit of ugliness about this and, and, you know, we can all debate how far we felt that was necessary. By but the way, that certainly doesn't was, scream
1: protagonists. <laughs> <you know. laughs>
2: this was play on the counter, try and force turnovers high up, try and force some errors, try and capitalize when they made errors. Um, but the, the second half, I think that was the plan again in the second half. And we put ourselves in a position to do that. Um. But the ugliness came because the plan just didn't happen other than like a six or seven minute period when Iwobi kept kind of running up the pitch and, you know, being very Iwobi and doing like the bit in the middle third and taking the ball into the final third brilliantly and then just not quite having the bit in the final third so um i mean generally i'm i'm all on board with arsenal winning ugly if that's the plan um i've never been one of these people who needs particularly to see you know champagne football um i think i've said many times I, i'm actually quite a big fan of direct football anyway i you know, I've, I find any kind of um, provocative, attacking football very entertaining, and if that means long throw-ins and long balls, that, that's kind of fine with me. But um... so, would you
1: prefer Allardyce or Pulis to to replace Emery? <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: yeah, but um, yeah. So I think there was this was maybe thirty percent ugly because that was kind of the plan, and seventy percent. That actually, the, that we didn't really execute the plan in the, particularly in the second half.
1: Yeah, I'd say the thirty percent was the first half, right? Because yeah, it wasn't yeah. pretty, but we put them to the sword quite a bit when they did make those mistakes, and you know we looked threatening. And in the second half, this this looked like a game where we were like, okay, two nil, let's coast. But we didn't coast. I mean, they they really did create some opportunities, and you know, I I know there were some people on Twitter that said, look. It was ugly, but it was comfortable. I didn't feel it was comfortable. I, You know, did I ever think we were going to lose it? I mean, I guess it's fair to say that we had the two-goal lead for most of the second half, so maybe not. But I would be concerned about, quote-unquote, protecting a 2 nil lead in the manner that we did in the second half. I mean, there's also a lot of revisionism, though. There are people who are using the Arsene Wenger stick to beat Emery and saying, at least under Arsene, we played pretty football. I love Arsene Wenger. I think it is absolutely incorrect to say that we played beautiful football the last couple of seasons. I mean look at mm-hmm. the, what was it, Brighton away last season that we lost and it was particularly unappealing. Yeah. There was one season where the only way we were able to get into the top four was basically by just shutting down our attacking game and, and playing dour defensive football for the last three months of the season. Um, you know, we we had to switch to a back, three. we were forced into a back three to right the ship a couple seasons ago and played very defensively. So, while I'm, I'm not saying that Emery has unlocked something special about Arsenal at this point, I, I, I do think it is incorrect to suggest that we we're playing beautiful football under Arsene Wenger the past couple seasons. And oh, by the way, two of the prettiest goals I've seen Arsenal score in the last five years were this season. But under him.
2: Yeah yeah, 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 yeah.
1: I mean, there were two at and granted, it's just two goals. But still, you know, everybody remembers the Wilshire goal against Norwich. People are quickly forgetting two of the best goals you've ever seen Arsenal score with this season. So, you know, maybe, maybe worth remembering that. Paul, I mean, where do you come down on, on this? The issue of being critical of a performance that results in three points. Do you think that it's um, one of these situations where shut up and take the points? Or is it fair to look at this and say, I have concerns based on, you know, look, we, we did go on quite a long winning run earlier this season. Or unbeaten run, anyway. Where we didn't play particularly convincing football and people talked about regression and then we regressed a bit. How, how much should we interrogate an away win when it comes at the expense of the performance?
3: Well, I think you need two or three different lines of perspective on this particular game at this particular time. I mean, it's not the only time we a, a person could be frustrated at the level of performance and the aesthetics of it. Um, but I do pretty much go for the this is a game uh, i mean criticize the heck out of it but with a little perspective which is to say given the options available um this was probably as reasonable a way to approach the game they got a win they were two goals up they had it wrapped up by half time only it's arsenal so they didn't really um uh, i made a joke uh, on the day of, we're as good at keeping a clean sheet as George Genio Winaldum after a vindaloo on a Friday night. At the moment, um, so we just, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, there is no safe, <laughs> there is no safe margin, right? You're two up at halftime. We're we're looking really good. We're we're into uh, added time, and we find a way to concede even at that point. Even though we've dodged every bullet to that point. So, uh, I think it's I think it's fine to con- criticize with a little bit of perspective of it's where we're at at the moment. But you can make the counter argument that there's been a lot of not very pretty or not very exciting football, and the quality in the second half was pretty poor. But maybe a few other people have a cold, and maybe mm. this is a team that hasn't. This was an eleven that hasn't played together like this in this format for a little bit of time. And that telling a team to wait for mistakes is not what this team has historically done. So you could you could come up with a lot of extenuating circumstances. But I didn't feel very good at the end of our second half, that's for sure. And I don't think most of Twitter did. Um, but give it a few more games and see what approach we take and what, what level we play to. But this can't have been particularly good for the, the morale of the team. On the other hand, three points... Uh nothing succeeds like a little bit of success. And we got a couple of games against uh Batty Borisov. So hopefully we get a couple of wins there. And then you come out of that and a stronger team, stronger squad, and we'll see what we do from there in. But I think for most of this for the rest of this run in, the we're gonna see a manager who constantly takes very pragmatic choices as he tries to craft a way to get this team into fourth place. And I think it's going to be mostly ugly.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's all well said. Look, I I would say this. I am not suggesting by any means that we need to be entertained every game. I do think playing entertaining football is part of the remit of a coach at a big club, that ideally um, the way you get a winning team is by playing attractive football, but I don't think that's a requirement. I don't think my complaint with this game is the lack of attractive football. I think it was the sloppiness of the football, the, the poor passing, and the extent to which we allowed ourselves to be pushed back into our own territory from the 45th to the 60th minute. So that's a 15-minute period. We completed one pass in the opposition half that originated in the opposition half and ended in the opposition half. In other words, we had two other passes that went from like just across, you know, just across the midfield stripe, but one pass that was completed in the opposition half from the 45th to the 60th minute. I think at Huddersfield, the worst team in the league, that's probably teetering on too defensive, right? I mean, I think we can agree that that's probably not the kind of balance you want. And that even a good team that you're putting yourself under too much stress from the 76th minute to the 90th minute, we completed one pass in the final third one. Um,
3: It was a cunning plan, Baldrick.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I I just think that sometimes maybe the message is, you know, let's defend and play on the counter. And unfortunately, the message is received too well, (laughs) uh, for lack of a better way to put it. But ultimately, look, it is the points that matter. And, you know, as we saw, teams... Lose games they shouldn't lose or don't deserve to lose. I mean, look, Spurs keep picking up points despite not playing well and probably not deserving to pick up the points, and and I don't think they're complaining about that. Uh, They may be complaining about the fact that they've lost their cheese room at their new billion-dollar stadium that will be ready in 2042, but that's another issue. Um, Before we move on and laugh at Chelsea really quickly at the end, Clive, I just want to touch on uh, Mkhitaryan for a second. He's sort of like the deus ex machina of the team when he plays, um, there is something he brings on the pitch that I can't quite put my finger on that makes us feel more dangerous and more attacky and, and more threatening. Okay. But he, he is a mystery box player. He can trip over his own feet with the defense you know, at sixes and sevens, or he can play the killer ball or, or score a beautiful goal from outside the box. Um, a sloppy player, but a player that adds definitely something to our attack. Do you want to quantify that uh, in a way that I have been unable to because I am an inarticulate art- buffoon?
4: Yeah, before I talk for me and probably Paul as well about Mkhitaryan, um, I just looked at our lineup versus Spurs. And in, in that game, the players that weren't involved in this game, we had Socrates, Holding, Bellerin, Shaka, Abamiang, Ramsey. They were all, none of those were involved in this game in any which way. Add those players to this team and we look at You look forgot to
1: add Mustafi. He wasn't involved in this game either.
4: Yeah, okay. Uh, on on Mikatayn, who's his first game back. And by the way, Mustafi was not the biggest problem in our defence. I think Monreal is an issue. Mustafi, we've already had a decision on. Monreal is one of those players that that could be it. That's what we're getting. A bit like Lichsteiner. And there's nothing else there in the legs. And he's running back into his box, not even trying to catch people up. And that's a massive weakness. It's amazing how people pick on people during games. But the player that scared me the most this game was Monreal. And people are picking on him. And what you do as a coach, you always pick on the weak link. And they chose him to pick on, not Mustafia, not Koscielny. That's quite interesting. So that's one for you to think about. So for me, uh, uh, Mikatarian. I never think about um,
1: anything, Clive. Don't give me that much. <laughs> Don't
4: give me that much better. Mikatarian um, i am I'm, I'm i am am a fan. This is not in this is not revisionist. This is something that's obvious to me. In our, in our best performances, he's always been part of them. Um, he never gets dominated. And that's the key thing to look for. He doesn't get dominated, he, and he always makes sure he holds his end up with a bargain. He works really, really hard. He supports his fullback better than anybody else, or his wingback better than anybody else. And he creates things. He switches sides. And he gets close to Woby, so they can double up on the left hand side. They like playing with. You know, they like playing together. That's for certain. He knows his role. He's really well defined. He's not perfect. His execution is not perfect. But, you know, I think we've really missed him in this last period. And I think Iwobi's missed him. It's no coincidence that Iwobi had his best game for a long time when Mkhitaryan's come back in. Because the burden's off, right? So, And, I, and I'm, I'm a big fan of what he is. And whether he'll be at Arsenal in you know, two years' time on that wage, I'm not so sure. But at the moment... As soon as he's back fit, he's straight back in. That tells you what the manager thinks about him. And so, um, yeah, I think sometimes you get better when you don't play. I think more Arsenal fans are aware of him now because I think they know we've missed him. And I'm glad he's back in our, in our show.
1: Yeah, I, I am too. I, I think it starts to pose some interesting questions. So, Tim, let's just quickly sort of look ahead. It's two legs mm-hmm. of the Europa League with nothing between them. More about two legs with nothing between them in a coming episode. Um, th- that's a, a rework of a joke I did on Twitter. But I mean, where where do you see
3: You're shit on Twitter?
1: <laughs> where where do you see the the, the uh, manager coach going in terms of of how he uses Mkhitaryan maybe over these these two legs against Bate and and how it might influence his decision regarding the strikers?
2: Yeah, that's going to be a really interesting one. Actually, is it? I think he obviously doesn't think, and I, in his short cameos, I think it's kind of showed that Denis Suarez is really up to the mark yet fitness-wise, and I can't see that dramatically improving um, in the next kind of few days. Um, I mean, I presume that quite a few of the players that missed this game will come back. I mean, we haven't really heard about the seriousness of Rams's injury um, or Mesut's sniffles. I, ca- I can't imagine that that, that will endure too much. Um, Abamyang should be back. Um, maybe we'll have Granite Jacker back as well. So it, it actually, it gives us quite a lot more in terms of options. Um, I, I think he'll play Mkhitaryan. Um again. I think that he'll, um, you know, we probably, I mean, he, he broke his foot, didn't he? So it's not like he had this, you know, horrendous injury that he really, really must play his way back in. He had like six weeks out, so, I don't think there's too many concerns about kind of just playing him um, and letting him letting him kind of get on with it. I think he'll lean on Mikatarian quite a lot, and I think he'll probably um rotate Iwobi and Suarez um which which seems fine to me. I think Mikatarian's a player he trusts quite a lot. He usually plays him. He's Mikatarian I think is is one player who kind of fits what Emery wants to do. He he really understands and I think likes that role where perhaps he's not quite a number ten but not quite a winger kind of playing in those half spaces. And I think particularly while we're without Bellerin um, whoever we play at right-back, whether it's Maitland, Niles or Lichtsteiner, um, one of the reasons I think he'll lean on Mikatarian is that he kind of knows what he's doing on that right-hand side. And we saw that for the Lacazette goal, that Mikatarian um, kind of, you know, he knew to wait for that overlapping run. And I, I think he's quite good for a right-back to play with, if, if that's the way you're playing. So... Um, I I do think that what we'll see is a bit more um playing one of the strikers and sharing their game time a little bit. I I don't I I like Lacazette and Abamyang together. I'm not convinced the manager really really likes it. I think he likes to leave you know a little something on the bench. Um so I I think we'll see that now. Uh now he's got Suarez in there as a kind of rotation option, so I I think that's, that's what we does might do. Jorginho will nail them.
3: <laughs> yeah, to leave a little something <laughs> in Yeah. Um Sorry.
2: best not to visualize that too much. So um Sorry. I I I do think that that's what we'll do and um, particularly away from home I think we'll kind of stick with the wing backs because um I mean what's he got at full back really Kalasinac and Maitland-Niles, you know, Monreal can't probably can't quite get up and down like he used to. We don't have Bellerin which is why well, I think he kind of, he went with the wing back. So, yeah, I I think Mikatarian will play. I think he might start Lacazette um, just because Lacazette tends, he, he, he doesn't tend to trust Lacazette for 90 minutes that often. He has done in recent weeks, I think, more because he hasn't had much of a choice. And I think he probably would think that um, a, a decent player to bring off the bench and Lacazette's, I think he's got three in his last four now in the premier league. So, um, yeah, ba- basically I, I think Mikatarian will be, um, fitness, you know, fitness permitting will be the one who plays more than anyone else in that kind of front three.
1: Mm, I, I would go for that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he is, you take a, what do they say? The rough with the smooth or whatever. Or was that just my wedding? Yeah, night? yeah. Okay. Um, don't step on my wedding night joke there, Tim. I want to make sure everybody heard that. Um, so yeah, that's fair. I, I mean, it, it is interesting because I, I. Do you have any suspicion, Tim, stay with you just for one second, that, that, you know, when Arsene Wenger wanted to rest players, they had a you know a toenail injury or they were sick. Do you think Emery, who has been reluctant to, to rest and rotate, maybe played a little of that with this illness thing? This, I mean, uh, we, there was a report yeah. of illness all week, but. With the Europa League coming back and, you know, Aubameyang has played a lot of minutes. These guys haven't had a lot of rest. Yeah, Do you think he maybe took advantage of that tactic a little bit here?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And and the fact that it was Huddersfield and he thought I could, if there's a game, if there is ever a Premier League game, I can get away with it. It's probably this one. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, Aubameyang, the, the reports were that he was sick quite a bit earlier in the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Xhaka was in full training as well. I, yeah, I think he probably thought take a little bit of a gamble. Um, I'll give these guys, you know, had it been like spurs away, I think we'd have seen them, um, put it that way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I kind of tend to agree with that. All right. Well, let's start to uh, wrap up for the third time. We will start to wrap up. Um, Clive quickly, your favorite goal that was scored against Chelsea at the weekend.
4: Um, I like uh Aguero's long shot right into the top bags. I like that. Um, I'm not sure that makes him a better striker in than interior on me, but hey, that's people's true. memories are very, very short. L- let's be so, clear, um, Neil
1: Custis is a moron. Um, just yeah, just in case there's any confusion yes. about that.
4: Uh, and yeah, not just him, but hey, look, that's the way it goes, right? People just can't think, right? whatever so, happened um,
1: to yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: yeah, exactly. But yeah, um uh, it comes back to, um, well, Chelsea are being found out, aren't they? they? They can only play one way and the players don't always like it. And they are they are rebelling slightly, particularly away from home. They weren't doing it for their own fans, but away from home, they're thinking, yeah, you know what, I don't fancy this. I'm sick of running around doing what he wants. And he's brought in two of his boys in the Higuain and Georgina, and, and we're playing for them. and And they're not that good so um so there you go so they're rebelling so good luck I hope they implode I'm just guys at Manchester United I found their I found their swagger because otherwise we'd be seeing pretty wouldn't we we so said on go. this
1: very podcast that Chelsea were going to fade away and I think they will and I tell you something if there was a seminar that you wanted to attend on how to down tools as a professional footballer you would almost certainly take it from <laughs> Chelsea they know how to down tools like nobody's business Paul which was your favorite goal scored against Chelsea at the weekend
3: yeah, well, it was very much that Aguero goal. Uh, I don't think there was anything quite in that department.
1: That is the incorrect <laughs> answer, by the way. There's only one right uh, answer, and that isn't it. Do you want to okay. know what the right what answer is? is? Yes. A little, is hilarious it? little Aguero tap-in after Ross Barkley did. Who the fuck knows what and heads it right back to him. I mean, that was hilarious. Come on. You don't love you don't love a goal against yeah, Chelsea okay, that it involves but, them screwing up themselves?
3: But, you know, at the same weekend, he was shown up by uh Kolasinac's
1: that's fair. Uh, That's Nice fair.
3: little tap-in. Okay, yeah.
1: you got me there. Yeah. Hey, you know what? That that raises a question, Tim, that I'll pose to you as as a final question of the podcast. Just, um, you know, there are a lot of people calling for Sarri's head at Chelsea and saying he should be sacked. I'm thinking he might be sacked. A lot of Chelsea fans want him sacked. Mm. There doesn't seem to be the same hand-wringing over calling for him to be sacked as there is over even criticizing Emery at Arsenal. I'm curious what you attribute the difference to. I mean, I realize they just lost 6 mil, and we we did, didn't have anything quite that bad happen to us, although I would submit that our performance at Anfield could have resulted in something like that. Um, but but even putting that to one side, I'm not saying Emory should be sacked. What I'm saying is, is mm. it maybe just the culture of sacking coaches there that makes it less taboo to do it? I mean, theoretically, we sit level with Chelsea. They are further in a cup than we are. Um, so why is it no one bats an eye at saying sorry uh, uh, should be sacked, but criticism of Emery is, is taken uh, with a lot more um, umbrage, so to speak.
2: Yeah, uh, this um, this was addressed, actually, I think, on the TFO football podcast last week. They did like a sorry episode, and they, they spoke about exactly this, actually. Um, and one of the things they said, yes, first, the culture of sacking at Chelsea. It's much more, yeah, we'll get rid of his because kind of people... That's what people expect. I mean, would any of us be surprised if in the next 24 hours, Sari sacked or the next week or the next two weeks? No. Um, Whether we personally agree with that or not. Um, But also, um, I I think they were kind of saying that Arsenal are kind of having the season that everyone expected them to. Everyone looked at Arsenal and thought, "Mm, they're maybe sixth, fifth, maybe they can scramble into fourth, but they should probably try and look at winning the Europa League. And effectively, again, it's, it's back to that results process. I mean, the process has probably been a bit of a surprise um, to this point, but the results possibly haven't. We're about where everyone expected us to be. So I think for Arsenal fans, obviously, we're more involved and we're looking at the process and the performances. But for most other people, it's a bit like, yeah, Arsenal are doing... Roughly what I thought, and the results kind of um arena. So I, I, I think those two things explain it. Also, you know, we have had quite a bit of upheaval. Still, you know, even since Wenger's gone, like the CEO and the head of and the head of recruitment have both left. So that there's still been some heads rolling.
1: Mm, yeah, I mean, I I think the interesting thing with sorry is, and it and I think we're even seeing it a little with Emery. Don't go on long winning runs early in the season that elevate expectations. You know what I mean? Um, Chelsea were theoretically title contending earlier in the season. Um, you know, and that that doesn't look so good. I mean, if you took Chelsea's results from the last two months and put them at the beginning of the season, people would call it growing pains. If you took the beginning of the season results and put them now, people would say you're seeing the fruits of the process. And maybe the same would be true of Emery's results. But you know, when that's not the case. People get their expectations elevated and then become disappointed. And you don't, you won't like me when I'm disappointed. Trust me, uh, Paul. Final word on that?
3: Yeah. So the other big difference is that Sari's opened the door on this. I mean, you can see that's a really massive daylight between him and the club. His comments about the, yeah
1: Roman not being reachable essentially were not
3: good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's on one side, and his having a go at the team as if. He's done everything he's, he can, and kind of, especially with, I mean, he knows the history. He knows that team has been called out before by previous man, two previous managers for doing something similar. So uh, there's nothing accidental there. Uh, his first utterances, people were saying, oh, well, maybe it's a translation issue, blah, blah, blah. But So he's gone there several times. And then you I- interestingly contrast that with Emery and talk about a guy fully aligned with his club keeping his nose super clean. And, you know, he does have his issues to deal with beyond where we're at in the football. I mean, there's the Ramsey and Ozil mines uh, that he's negotiating, and he's done reasonably well on. So it's kind of, it's almost a, a case study in alignment versus separation mm, and maybe sorry, just protecting his reputation and reflecting the reality of his club. Maybe if, if the owner wasn't a Bramovich, he'd be, he'd have kept himself visibly aligned with the club, but uh, yeah. it may just be a reflection of all of the shit that's going on back at Chelsea.
1: And I'll say this, Emery definitely owes Ozil at least a thank you in one department, which is that, Whatever's going on between those two, and I'm sure is playing his part in it, but on the PR front, Ozil seems like he's rolling in the club's direction. You know what I mean? Um, you look at like what happened with Pogba and Mourinho, and that was much more in the public eye, whereas whatever's happening with Ozil, it's happening behind the scenes, and Ozil's public face has been his usual well-managed PR. So I, I think we've benefited from that not bubbling up in, into the public view, at least in terms of their open contempt for one another. Uh, Clive, and I do
3: think we... We can be somewhat cynical about Ozil, um, and having read up a bit on him recently on some of the good coverage out there, I think he's just a very quiet guy, and yes, he has a PR organization do his, doing his PR marketing, which you can take cynically. On the other hand, i like to think that it's a reflection of he's a he's a guy who likes playing football and doesn't like the public shit, and he leaves that to his PR company, so he maybe get one can maybe take it more cynically. Um, well, i mean, surely it, it, you'd it agree is. there's
1: something going on behind the scenes, though. Oh,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah no question.
1: Um, Clyde, final thought on that?
4: Yeah, on, on Emery. Yeah. Emery is massively respected in the game. And I'll tell you now, you listen to other people within the game, they always say Arsenal have a good manager. don't agree what, what he does all the time, but he has got a lot of coaching respect, and I think he is establishing himself in the club. I'm desperate to see how he picks talent. And once I feel we can align it to him and then we can then start to see what type of a team he's going to produce. At the moment, he is coaching our team as as his job title says. He's coaching them and trying to squeeze as much out as he can. And that's the reason I am not sure about the respect by which um, Sarri held within Chelsea. The fans have been mumbling for a couple of months now. It's really come to its head, and you know Chelsea's got more leagues than anything you want to think about, right? So, and they've got incredibly strong dressing room. That's not as strong as maybe as it used to be. They could basically manage themselves to win the Champions League. So, um, I think within the game, whispers are out there. Sarri's struggling, and I think. Emery is holding on and he's got a good chance of stringing some results together, and hence why I don't think the light is shining in exactly the same way.
1: Yeah, no, I think those are all really good points that I would never have considered because I don't have that insight. Um quick one word answers from each of you. Tim, you think uh mm. you think Mesedoza will start against Bate on Thursday? No. Mm. That's sad. You know, the one thing I, I miss <laughs> is like watching him beat up the likes of like Ludigarets or whatever. Like I I, I like him against Minos. Uh, Clive, what do you think?
4: No way. No, Paul. No, mate, the tea's gone nope. him.
1: No. Nope. Okay. Great. So, so cool. So that was money well spent. <laughs> awesome. I think he'll start. I think he'll dominate. How about that? I'm always, I'm always willing to make the ridiculous. Per, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Forecast. I don't know. I've run out of words. Since I've run out of words, uh, kind of think- like. Yeah.
3: I think he will be swung into the game on a crane, suspended like a Greek god, Deus ex, ex machina.
1: Okay, cool, great contribution. Um, the, the the words thing is working about as well for me as the passing thing did for Arsenal in the second half. So we should leave it there. Uh, Paul's on Twitter at pause in my pants. Thanks, pause. Woohoo! Clive's on Twitter at clivepafc. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Tim's on Twitter at stoberto. Hey, Tim, you haven't plugged any mm. writing. What are you writing about?
2: Uh, don't know yet. I was hoping to steal some ideas um, tonight, so maybe I'll listen to this back. Un- and, unfortunately uh, for you,
1: this was a shit podcast, so you're not going to find anything here.
2: <laughs> and you'll get 1,500 words of uh, this podcast rehashed
3: somehow.
1: Yeah, that's fine. Georgia
3: Wijnaldi, Tim,
1: J- Just print out the closed <laughs> captions from the YouTube version. Um, all right, well, it's still a pleasure to talk to you. My name is Elliot Smith, the Blackman Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Give us a five-star review right now. Ask things about Scott. Scott will be back on Thursday. We'll try to do something live on Thursday as well as some more great Uh, patreon content but if you haven't listened to the would you rather pod we did on patreon and you've been thinking of trying our patreon i think it's some of the best stuff we've done um to to date it's just a lot of fun and a lot of really challenging questions uh that that really force you to take a position on on where you stand in arsenal right now so um you can go do that on patreon and, and try it and if you hate it then cancel your subscription and send me a nasty email or your feces in a box or something. I don't know. Uh, so yeah, anyway, that's it. That's all we got to talk about. Uh, give us a five-star review, all that stuff. We uh, we love you. We appreciate you. And we will talk to you after Arsenal 10. That nils.